Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. And welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And um, that music you hear right there is Les Blanks. As always, they uh, give me that song to play on the show. Go to lesblanks.com, check out more of their music. They are real good, like, with their guitars and drum stuff. And a little bass. Um, If you haven't listened to Conversations with Matt Dwyer before... um, that's what this show is. I have a conversation with a person about their life and what they do, and hopefully we learn some things and we laugh a little bit and we go away feeling a little closer to the human beings of this planet and have a better understanding of things. Why I'm talking in this affected voice is beyond me, but uh, I'm going to accept it because it's what happened, and now it's gone. It's in the past. It doesn't exist anymore, and now we're here in the present which isn't really the present because I recorded this intro about a week ago, but for you it's in the present. So what we got there is a cross-dimensional thing happening because maybe it still is in the present. And now we're here. So, you know, there, here's we are, right back in the present. That All that garbagey talk I just did doesn't exist anymore because we're here in the now, right now. Are you ready? Because here we go, and we're it now. It's now, now, now it's now. Hello. Hi. Now. It's now. And speaking of the now, it's a very uh, Buddhist sort of thing I'm doing, talking about. Uh, This next conversation is with uh, Pamela Bothwell, who is, I'm going to totally butcher this title, but we cover it in the actual conversation. She is an, uh, it's a Buddhist, she's a Buddhist teacher. She teaches meditation and Buddhism-y stuff. And uh, I had a verily, verily, I had a verily uh, great conversation with her in the back patio of the Shambhala uh, Center there in Eagle Rock. And um, you can hear some buses and planes going over now and again, but, you know, we overcame. We overcame. Uh, that's the the great nature of this show is that uh, I get to go to all these places and talk to these people. And sometimes it's a little um, raw and sometimes it's uh, pretty awesome. But uh we talk about a lot of great things, uh, about Buddhism, life, depression, love, um, and it veers into all kinds of crazy things. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. Pamela, I felt a real real cool bond with her. So, enjoy this conversation now. I am sitting on the, I guess, the back patio of the Shambhala Meditation Center of Los Angeles. Did I get that right? You did. With uh, Pamela Bothwell. Did I get that right? You did, too. <laughs> I, I make a lot of mistakes in my life, and much bigger than those I just made. <laughs> but, uh, and you, the, the uh, and uh, hopefully we won't get too much interference from the cars, but, or airplanes, or protesters against me, I've done. But uh, your, and the title which you said you do not like to use is... Uh, Shastri. Shastri. Now, what is that exactly? It's a Sanskrit word, and it means Teacher. Teacher. So you're a teacher, but I you don't like. Teacher. Why don't you like to consider yourself a teacher? No, I do like to consider myself a teacher. I just don't think of myself with a title. <laughs> okay, and now and and Shim, Shimbala is uh, now that is a 
is it it's an extension of Buddhism? How do you exactly how do you describe that exactly? Shambhala is a lineage of teachings that comes out of Tibet that is based on the principles of gentleness and fearlessness. It's a warrior tradition, but it's a tradition of non-aggression. So it's an interesting kind of uh, paradox of non-aggression and confidence and fearlessness that makes up Shambhala warriorship. And it's related to Buddhism in that Tibet is a Buddhist country. So everyone in the time that Shambhala arose, it's a mythical kingdom that arose in, I don't know, sometime in the first thousand years of the common era, that um, there was a king, and the king wanted to practice dharma, but he was really busy as a king. So he invited the Buddha to come, and he said, I don't have time to go be a monk and do retreat, but I would like to learn the principles of dharma so that I can make my country a more prosperous and peaceful and a, a place where people experience well-being. And the Buddha said, okay, but my monks have to leave the room when I give <laughs> you this teaching. <laughs> and he gave the teachings of the Shambhala tradition, which are teachings that anybody can practice. You don't have to be a Buddhist to do it, but it's based on a lot of the uh, qualities and virtues and um, practices that are taught in the Buddhist tradition. In Tibet, Buddhism really was established in Tibet in around the 7th to 9th century. And the teachings were brought over in different sort of stages. And there are four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism. But Shambhala, the Shambhala tradition is sort of parallel, and it's based on a whole cultural tradition in addition to just... Uh, the practice of individual liberation and the practice of trying to find enlightenment as an individual. So the, in the way it's taught here and the really brilliant kind of magic that Trungpa Rinpoche brought to it here is that he recognized that in this world, in this culture, and in this time, we're really disconnected from our humanity. And there's so much materialism, so much speed, so much aggression that we've lost touch with our own inherent goodness so in a in a sense it's sort of uh is it i don't know if this is the right word like a modern modernification of buddhism a little bit to make it adapt to because it is it, it is a very i would say a unique time i'm sure maybe everybody says that about their time <laughs> the 20s it's a unique time right but it is there is more i think sense and things coming at you than ever before or to me, it's. I think I just discussed this with you on the phone of like how Robert Thurman was saying that we're in a dark age. Yes. And a lot of people, I don't. It's funny because people are like, look how much technology we got and look how far we are going. And it's like, I feel like a lot of this uh, Twitter, internet, whatnot, it's like, I mean, I spend way too much time on my computer and phone and it's. I'm starting to feel like a weirdo. <laughs> and I'm aware of it. I don't think most people are. But and I went off track. But it is yeah. it. Would you say it is like a, a modern... Well, one or? of the interesting things about Tibetan Buddhism is that Padmasambhava, I think we were talking about him earlier, is the person who brought Tibet from, brought Buddhism to Tibet from India. And one of the things that is said about him is that he hid teachings way back in the ninth century, to be discovered at a later time by people who were tuned in and really had a kind of ability to articulate the teachings in a way that was appropriate to the time and place. And Trungpa Rinpoche, who brought the Shambhala teachings to the West, was said to be such a person, someone who could discover those hidden teachings and present them in a way that was relevant and understood and meaningful in this time and place. So yes, I think the explosion of technology and the you know, immediate gratification that this culture seems to cultivate, the need for that and all of that, turns us away from paying attention to what is going on inside all the time and what is available to us. We're always looking outward for some stimulus, for some entertainment, for some something good. <laughs> Which I would say is not always good what we're looking for like i feel like we live in a time more so where people seem almost entitled to fame <laughs> which is really a screw because like uh 
fame isn't going to... I think people think, in a weird way, fame is enlightenment. And, like, if you can get to that world, there's some kind of wholeness that comes to you. And it's like, you're just going to be a bigger mess, yeah. <laughs> I would like, assume. Like being rich. Yeah. Celebrity and wealth. I'm sorry, but Andy. I have to argue with you. Rich does bring happiness. <laughs> a lot of massages. Well, you can do a lot of good with, with more money. You can spread it around and do a lot yeah. of good with it. But you can do a lot of good without it, too. Right. No, I I, I was being facetious. <laughs> I know you were. <laughs> now, just to back up, and I would like to go back to the Shambhala thing, but I would like mm -hmm. to hear, like, what, how did you come to find this or... or, or like, I mean, were you raised in a traditional sort of uh, re religious sense? I was raised by a very open-minded family. We were Jewish, but my mother insisted that I be exposed to as many different religious traditions as possible. And she said, you choose, which was incredibly wonderful of her. And I was, uh, I guess I was about 19, living in New York, in therapy, my therapist. Wait a minute, a Jewish person in New York in therapy? I've never heard of I this. I know, it's a really <laughs> weird phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I've never seen a Woody Allen movie, so I'm not sure if it's been covered. Um, what, and what brought you to New York? Oh, I wanted to be a dancer. Did you? <laughs> Did I become a dancer? Well, I mean, you, you must have done some kind of... I wanted to be a dancer. I would, after six weeks, it was apparent to me that there was no way in hell that I could ever be a dancer, but what, I loved the effort. What sort of dance did you want to do? Oh, I wanted to be an Alvin Ailey dancer. <laughs> I know what that is, but I can't place it. Cause... It's an incredible troupe. Of, it's modern dance, and it's uh, filled with spirit and energy and exploding beautiful body movement. But I did not have the body, the energy, or the spirit for it. So it's. Uh, I, I lived in, in New York. New York is a. That's a tough. How long were you in New York? Five years. Five years. And so, uh, you beat. I was there about six months, so you beat me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, just so you know, I view everything as a competition. But so, the the dancing thing didn't work out. So then, what 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 progressed after that? Oh, so there I was in therapy, not making it as a dancer, working as a waitress at Jack Dempsey's restaurant. Whole story in itself. Very. Did funny. you meet Jack Dempsey? No, I never did. No. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, at my therapist's office, there was a magazine on his coffee table that had an ad for a retreat center in Vermont that was supposed to be, I think at the time, $10 a night for room and board. So that summer, I was camping with my friend, and it was raining, and we did not want to camp in the rain. And we remembered that there was this Buddhist place. So we went there. We made a pact with each other that if it was, you know, they were going to proselytize us, and it was going to be all incense and flowers and robes and trippy we were out of there and we would splurge for a Hotel. bed and breakfast or something how what year was this roughly 73 okay because flowery weirdness was not uh, a stranger in those days oh no <laughs> were you very anti the hippie world no i i actually considered myself a hippie but i was not interested in so-called spirituality at all i just you were shut off to that i just didn't have any interest in it I just wasn't interested. I was sort of cerebral and uh, analytical and, I don't know, just not interested in anything touchy-feely spiritual. Because that's, I would say that's where I was. I was very, and I could analyze and justify pretty much anything <laughs> and until you uh, mentally and emotionally just become crippled, <laughs> as, as I did. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and so you got, so you went to this. So I went to this place, and when we got there, there were two people on the porch who apparently were cooks arguing about what to put in the soup. And there was a woman who was uh, grooming the cat. And it was so not what I imagined a Buddhist retreat center would be. It was so down to earth. And she said, Oh, well, you can go swimming in the swimming hole, or you can work in the garden, or you can go meditate, whatever you feel like doing, which is. Not how it is these days. It's much more disciplined and rigorous there now. But in those days, that's what it was like. And so my friend and I decided to go to the swimming hole. You know? <laughs> but we thought we ought to be polite and receive meditation instruction because that's what the place was about. Mm -hmm. So we went into the children's playroom, and the guy who was giving us meditation instruction said, well, you just follow your breath. And I had no idea what that meant. 
but I pretended. So <laughs> we're sitting there, you know, just pretending to meditate, and it felt really good. It just felt kind of, well, I'm, I don't know what my breath is, so maybe I better think about what my breath is, and I don't know what it would ever mean to follow my breath instead of following my thoughts. And so we stayed, and I actually ended up staying for a week, and my friend decided to move in. Really? Yeah, she just... And she's still it. there? Uh, no, but she's still part of the community. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so then I went to New York, went home to New York. I had been living in New York, and there was a city meditation center that was connected with that retreat center, and I went and knocked on the door. It was a, a brownstone in Chelsea, and they came to the door, and they said, can we help you? And I said, yeah, I'd like to meditate. And they said, oh, we're playing Monopoly tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, they let me play with them. And four months later, I moved in. <laughs> wow. And I've basically been doing this ever since. Now, when you first, uh, like when you said it felt really good when you first meditated, mm -hmm. was it because my experience when I first started doing something like that, it was, and I get sort of hesitant to say these things because it also sounds like when you hear people accept Jesus Christ, which I'm... <laughs> Not knocking, but I sort of am. <laughs> but it was like, after being cerebral and an atheist for a long time, it sort of was like, I was. it was a sense of relief. Exactly. Because, I don't know, it's, I think specifically we Westerners are very hesitant to give in to anything or, you know, because we're very like, hey, I got this. Let me, you know, that whole rogue cowboy horse shit that we've been had shoved down our throats for so many years. But so, and then you just, you didn't want to stop. You just sort of, you went. Well, that sense of relief is actually, I think, what brings anybody back, what makes anybody willing to keep going with the path of meditation. Because as my teacher, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, says, you have to enjoy it, otherwise you won't do it. Right. <laughs> And there's a lot, you know, we have a lot of expectations about meditation that it's going to be some transcendent experience and, you know, we're going to find serenity. And that isn't typically what we find when we sit down. We find that we have a really busy mind and we fixate on things and, you know, chewing on emotions and thoughts and repeating back to ourselves conversations that we had, like, oh, my God, why did I say that, you know, or, you know, <laughs> I wish I could resolve this, and twisting it around in our minds, how am I going to resolve it, and, you know, strategizing and all this stuff. And the meditation technique, the practice, basically says, just let all that stuff come up and let it dissipate on its own. You don't have to do anything with it. You neither express it nor repress it. And the way that the Buddha taught for doing that is by coming back to the breath as the present moment. So you're in the middle of this intense thing, you know, like, oh, my God, I've got this fight with my lover, and I, you know, I'm imagining this, and I'm imagining that, and then, oh, breath. And then it's like, what even is the breath? It's a really interesting thing to have as the object of meditation. You know, some techniques, they have you look at, like say a candle flame or a flower or some object. But in our tradition, you relate to the breathing because it actually connects you with your body, with feeling present in the body. And every time you come back to the breath, it's the present moment. Here you are. And that's kind of like square one, ground zero. And then all the thoughts come and go like images on a screen. And some of them we get more attached to than others. Some of them are easier to say, oh, that's just a thought, let it go. Some of them, you know, oh, that one's a feeling, so that one's really intense, and i got to hold on to that or work through it. Or, But if you come back to the breath, you realize that there are perforations, you could say, all the time, you know, where there's some kind of bigger space in which the thoughts are coming up. Does that make sense? It does to me. Mm -hmm. Uh I, now I, I had a question, and it, it, I let it go. Like you said, I should. <laughs> and now the rest of this will just be silence for the next 50 minutes. <laughs> um, but what now when you meditate and you 
when you start seeing patterns in your own thought or how many how, you've been meditating roughly for how long now uh almost 40 years 40 years yeah so i should be a lot saner than i am you'd think i was judging you you are right <laughs> <laughs> how did you know uh but i know like i notice patterns in the way i think about things and then so that hopefully in life when i'm not meditating i can alter that um and i would meditate with a candle sometimes and but sometimes i would no, there's you, nothing wrong with that oh no i know i know but i mean like i would notice silly things like oh i should have placed a candle differently so i could see it and, and it's like such a silly thing to be caught up about and it's like which i think is a sign of a bigger issue in my mentality of like oh it's you rolled your eyes at me <laughs> but it is it's like oh you know like i gotta control things and i gotta do you know like as opposed to just letting it be what it is and accepting and moving on it's a very you know which we do in life we get caught up on nonsense that hinders us from being present so to speak did that make sense totally yeah and i guess i mean have you do you feel like you've uh noticed a lot of these patterns in yourself and sort of corrected or corrected that's not the right word is it that's i like think what happens uh, lots of things happen but one of the things that happens is that we kind of wear out the shoe of the thought you know the thought comes up the thought comes up the same thing you know why do i have this particular interpersonal dynamic with so and so you know and, Habitually, we would try to take it apart and analyze it, and that hasn't ever really resolved the situation. And at a certain point, when we're able to let it go, then you might see it in a completely different way. And it's not that you're strategizing another way to behave when you get up off the cushion, but you're, you're kind of developing enough confidence in your own inherent wisdom and strength and goodness that you can respond from the heart in the situation instead of from a strategy. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's an interesting thing you say, because I think most, or I, I guess when I say most people, I mean myself, <laughs> but everything is we strategize a lot of and we go in and i have actually i have friends who do that who are like oh i've got to go to this situation and if he says this i'm gonna and it's like you're totally making yourself upset about something that doesn't even exist <laughs> yeah like you're not in that moment but you're creating it and not in the proper way like you're anticipating it to go to shitsville yeah forgive yeah. my language you're yeah. a nice lady yeah. you don't but you you dad you know knew a bunch of jazz musicians i'm sure you knew uh, i told my daughter i was gonna have this conversation with you and she said are you going to tell him that you get mad and you say, fuck, shit? <laughs> Very, and I said, should I? <laughs> yeah, well, you just did. There so, you go. <laughs> but uh, no, but uh, yes, you should present yourself in an untruthful manner to me <laughs> as a person that you are not. Because that's the whole point of this uh, conversation. Yeah, I get mad. I get mad and I say, fuck, shit. <laughs> did Buddha get mad? Probably. Probably. <laughs> the first thing I realized is... We don't know any, like, the Western perception of Buddhism is really off base. And I think people really get it hung up on the uh, life is suffering, and they almost take it as a lot of negative. Mm -hmm. And it's, because that's, I know I misunderstood that for many, many years of what that meant. And I think people fixate on that. Do you find that to be true, or am I, or is that just my No, no, I think, I think some people probably do. I don't know. I'm I guess it doesn't matter. You know, I think that um, the fact that the first noble truth is the truth of suffering is basically saying, let's look at things how they actually are as opposed to how we would like them to be. Not that um, that's all there is, but let's acknowledge that we suffer. And then where's that coming from? That's coming from ignorance. That's coming from actually not looking directly at how things are. And when you look directly, you see there's a bigger picture. And then when you see that there's a bigger picture, you see that you don't have to get stuck in that little teeny prison of suffering. So I think that's why the truth of suffering was taught as the first one. You know, actually what happened, the Buddha came out of his 
realization under the Bodhi tree and he came out and he said I've discovered a nectar that I don't know the exact quote but it's something like you know resolves all confusion and people were like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) he said never mind wait a minute and he went back into retreat so he could find a way of articulating it that would make sense to people and then he came back and he said okay let's start over let's start with the fact that We're all actually suffering a lot. It's painful to be a kid and grow up. It's painful to change. It's painful to get sick. It's painful to die. You know, there's pain. We don't like the feeling of not having what we want. We don't like the feeling of having what we don't want. You know, we don't even know what we want. There's suffering. And believe me, there's incredible numbers of categories of suffering in Buddhism. (laughs) Right. What... Yeah, I I was going to ask you to go into that, but I don't think we we need to really. <laughs> but it is, and that's the thing is, I I think that I related to is like a, a lot of different beliefs don't want to address that. A lot of it, I guess I'm speaking more of like Christianity, and I'm not. I don't mean to harp on Christianity, but I am. <laughs> but it's like a lot of it's like oh later we'll get we'll do like it's it doesn't really deal with. It's all like, oh, pray to God, and it's, it's going to be all cool. <clears throat> you know, I think there's a certain kind of um, depth in all religious traditions where those kinds of issues are addressed, but it's not the way they're more popularly practiced. Yeah, that would be a better way of, of putting it. Yeah, because I think that, for example, virtue. Virtue is a really interesting idea. You know, when I first heard my teacher talking about virtue, I thought, oh, goody two-shoes kind of thing. But virtue actually means recognizing the consequences of anything you say or do or even think and recognizing that you have a choice between going in the direction that's going to cause harm or that doesn't cause harm. And I think all major religious traditions teach virtues. You know, there are common virtues like patience and exertion and, you know, gentleness and generosity and discipline that are common in, in all traditions. I just, yeah, and I, I, when, I, when I actually do take shots at Christianity, I'm not... It's just that some people have really allowed it to get off the rails with, like, guys like Reverend Phelps. <laughs> it's just like... Eh, you didn't read that book, did you? Did you miss everything Jesus said? But and if you're li- and they were they were uh, I went to the All Star game. They were picketing at the home run derby, and it's like I don't know like <laughs> home runs that hotbed of sodomy. <laughs> it was like I'm pretty really, weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm like oh, the great American pastime: hot yeah. dogs, baseball, and blowjobs and bathhouses. <laughs> it was really confusing. But so now you were in New York and then what, but when you were, were you involved in, was it Shambhala you were involved in immediately or was it? Well, the teacher who was the teacher of the retreat center in Vermont where I was introduced to meditation and then of the center in New York was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And he's the person who brought the Shambhala teachings to the West. It wasn't called Shambhala then. Um, The center was... The center in the city was called Dharmadhatu. And when Trungpa Rinpoche died in 1987, and after he died, his principal student was the head of Shambhala for um, a couple of years. And then, sadly, he died too. But Trungpa Rinpoche's oldest son became the main teacher and the head of Shambhala. And he changed the name of the city centers from Dharmadhatu to Shambhala centers. And so, yes, I've been a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and his Dharma heir, the Vajra regent Ursul Tenzin, and then his son, Trungpa Rinpoche's son, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche. Three of them have been my teachers all these all these years. You yeah. What is the what is what does the exact word Shambhala mean? Did we didn't say that, did we? Is it there, is there a direct meaning of yeah, that word? There or? probably is. I don't know what it is, but it refers to a mythical kingdom, and this is that kingdom where the king. Want. Oh, I didn't tell you. Did I tell you? You yeah. did say the thing about Buddha. and He the, sent his monks out of the room. And yeah, then he gave and that's the all teaching. a mythical king? Or? Yeah, well, it's a mythical kingdom. And I guess, you know, I don't know if there was actually an historical person. I thought there was in, I thought there wasn't 
didn't that sort of happen? There, I thought there was a king that ruled his his land from oh, the yes. Buddhist. Oh, yes. There were Dharma kings in Tibet, definitely. King Trisam Detson, who invited Padmasambhava. There are other Dharma kings. There's a whole tradition of Dharma kings. And, uh, and actually, Shambhala is a kingdom, and there is a king of Shambhala, and that king currently is Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, who is the head of our Shambhala community of Right, and his he—he's. I just touched dog, uh, bird poo, <laughs> bird poo on this table, and I put my finger in it. Oh, lovely! You know, I was once. Um, I went on the Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche wrote a couple of books, and on his first book tour, I went to Austin with him for his book signing and talk. And I came out of the house to go with him to the book signing, and a bird pooped on my shoulder as I came out of the <laughs> And he said, oh, that's good luck. <laughs> that's what somebody said to me once. I was actually on my way to a big audition, and right before I walked in the door, bammo. And someone was like, that's good luck. I was like, I didn't get I didn't get the TV show. So yeah, maybe but- that was good luck, because I probably would have, at that point in my life, blown it on liquor and drugs. So <laughs> I didn't see the good luck as it was. Now, now I, I'm not going to even attempt to say his name, but the fellow who is in charge here, what can can you repeat that, please? Sakyong, which is a title, and it means earth protector. Sa is Tibetan for earth, and Kyong means protector. He's the protector of the earth, and his name is Mipam, and his honorific title, like like reverend, sort of, is Rinpoche. It actually means precious. Okay, and but he doesn't. He himself is not enlightened or anything, or is he near? I don't. You don't know. Well, I mean, I think so, but he wouldn't say that. Right. I guess a lot of people who are enlightened probably don't go skipping around screaming it at everybody. Right. <laughs> he's he's incredibly sane and wise and funny. He was raised both in India and here, and he's a runner. He's run ten marathons, and he's. Um, used to be into bodybuilding, so he looked really, like, buff. But um, he's more into running now, so he's lost that kind of heavy-duty thing. <laughs> but <laughs> he's very sweet. He's a very wonderful teacher. A lot of... I, I would think a lot of people would not assume that there are enlightened beings walking this earth. Would you agree with that? I mean, I would... You know, when I met Trungpa Rinpoche, his father, and he, I think... It, He's widely regarded as having been an enlightened being. Um, I didn't have I didn't have any expectation of what that would mean to be an enlightened being. You know, uh-huh. that's the, I, like I told you, I wasn't interested in spirituality. But after I was at the meditation center, I bought his books. I thought, okay, be polite, read what the guy said. And I'm reading this book. The book was cutting through spiritual materialism. Every page, I'm thinking, how did he know this about me? How did he know this about me? <laughs> I think I've read that book, and I read it years ago. That's really interesting. I, re- I read that book a long time, like, in the 90s. That's yeah. really weird, because that title did, really stuck out to me. Did, how did you find it? it I mean, it, how did it, you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it, and it's mm-hmm. something that I've internally carried around with me. I lost the book. <laughs> You have some more here. <laughs> I'm, uh, maybe I'll grab one. But uh, yeah, I, that's, that's really interesting because I used the phrase w- with, when talking in the kitchen to uh, Alice here, I used the phrase spiritual materialism. Uh-huh. It's really interesting. What does it mean to you? I feel like um, I'm probably going to be wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> I feel like people hold on to things sp- that they think have spiritual worth that are actually like I kind of think like the kingdom of heaven is a little bit of spiritual materialism because it's like you're holding on to something that is not in the present it's like oh later and these rewards and all these things and it's like we got to deal with ourselves now and 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 be in the present opposed to I, I feel like that's almost a hall pass a little bit. It was like, oh, just we'll get there. Just accept yeah, this and yeah. boom, you're in heaven and it's all cool. And it's like you got a lot of shit to deal with now. Mm-hmm. Am I in the ballpark there? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Like anytime I get tested, it stems back from well, elementary I was school. I ask you <laughs> what you know drew you to coming here and talking to me. First of all, I asked the questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, like I said, I've lived. Uh, down the street from here for two years, I've definitely, I've been, um, uh, as I said to Alice earlier, I, I would say, I wouldn't, I, I don't feel like I'm in, 
can say I'm a Buddhist because that seems like a I, it seems like a grand I don't think I'm at that I feel like I'm a student or I'm learning and I'm searching um, and that's all we're all doing true uh, and I guess I'm searching still I like I said I too I I chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo I meditate I've listened to some Alan Watts um, meditation things uh, I've been doing it very much on my own uh, there is a sort of thing I was sort of practicing I'm, I was being hesitant to say which but I, uh, I'll say it I don't give That's a shit okay. the SGI which makes me really nervous like there's some of their literature seems a little culty to me and there's a lot of um, praying for material things like well there's a part in the chant and whatever where you can pray for whatever you want and it can be hey give me a tv show or and that just seems um and maybe it's just me personally but that just seems not a pro spiritual growth i'm trying to shed myself of these uh things that may cause me to suffer yet i'm wanting a television asking for a tv show <laughs> riches and fame which are gonna cause me to really probably just suffer all the more I would think. So that I take issue with. And there's a lot of praising the certain individuals who are in the organization, and I, I don't know how I feel about that either. <laughs> we do, um, I think we talked about it on the phone, we do a chant in the morning where we um, basically pay homage to the teachers of the lineage going back to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And it's basically just saying, look, these people were brave enough to sit down and look at their minds, and then they were kind enough to share what they learned mm -hmm. to make it possible for other people to do that. So I think that's actually a really nice thing to do. It's sort of acknowledging the the lineage in a way. That When it's presented that way, yes, I, I agree with you, and I do think that is very important. Um, I guess there's just some other things within that organization. That, yeah, I'm not familiar oh, with yeah. it, so I can't it's speak weird, to that. It's weird because it's some, yeah. and I've heard it's, I guess it's based out of, and I am probably may mispronounce his name, but Nigerian Buddhism, which, do you know Nigeri? I, I really am not educated in that yeah. school at all. Which he believed that we can reach, enlightenment is within our lifetime, was that his belief. But then, then this is like, so then there's <clears throat> SGI is a, even a step outside of that and it's a little confusing to me but maybe i'm approaching that incorrect anyway i'm still searching <laughs> is is the point and uh this place has been here and i've been wanting to come in here for two years and my life is you know whatever and i didn't get in here and now here i'm you here are. yeah right welcome thank you very much it's a nice place by the way it is nice um that what brought you to this specific place in general, here in Los Angeles, because you came. Um, well, so I was in New York. I was in college. I graduated. I went to graduate school. For what did you go to school for? Well, when I was in, I was a Barnard, and I was a religion major, <laughs> and <laughs> and then I went to graduate school at Columbia, and I was in the. Um, you were smart. You went to Columbia. That's a big one. I was in the Middle East Languages and Cultures Department there. And when I finished my coursework, I still had to write my thesis, and I moved to Vermont to the Contemplative Center where I had first gotten introduced to meditation. So I lived there for three years while I was working on my thesis, and I had a great time living there. It was incredible. Then I moved from there to Boulder, and I went to law school, got married. How many degrees do you have? Some. Three. <laughs> Some. I barely have a high school diploma. <laughs> I'm kind of a school junkie. I like being a student. <laughs> As you can see that I'm still a student after all these years of this. Right. Um, so then I, I got married. I had my daughter when we lived in Boulder, and then we moved to San Francisco. My husband's a lawyer. I had my son, my older son there. My husband got asked to move to L.A. to start the L.A. office of his law firm. And they said it was going to be one year, and it'll be 30 years next year. So <laughs> it's a long year. But you're, fr you're a native from here. so I, I am guess it from was... here, and I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to be and here. And so here. this Shambhala, it was just you, so you moved back here, and you're just like, oh, I'll go to these Shambhalas here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing is that there is a center here, and 
there are so many centers around the world that you can go to wherever you are. It's very nice. It's because I was having this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. There are so, there are so many d- different kinds of I don't know if what you would call it, different kinds of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. And how I'm not that's is probably too big of a question, but it's like I don't. It's, Do you want me to try to answer it? <laughs> yes, I mean because it is like there was Buddha and that right. guy, right? And uh, and then I don't know how it all spread out. It's like I mean, and Christianity did that where there's like, hey, we're these guys, and I don't know if within Buddhism, if one guy's going, we're the right one, or because I I know the Dalai Lama is sort of like, yeah, it's all of it. Just jump in and have a swim, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. Dead on quote, by the way, of of the <laughs> Dalai Lama. I appreciate that direct quote. <laughs> Well, let's see. The short answer, I would say, is that they say that the Buddha turned the wheel of Dharma three times, which basically means there are three sort of levels of teaching. The first whole body of teachings is about understanding mind and confusion and seeing that you can actually understand the causes of suffering and discover release from that. And it's a the fruition, you could say, of that of the first turning teachings is is called individual liberation. So it's kind of me. I'm fucked up. I don't feel happy. I want to understand what's causing my suffering, and I want to be able to do something about it. And then there's a sort of evolution that happens of the practitioner as you're meditating and you're understanding the causes of confusion. And there are gazillion categories. Those The teachings that are in the first turning teachings fall into three, they call three baskets. One is about how mind works. It's called the Abhidharma. One is about the rules for the monks, the Vinaya. And all those rules are things that arose out of real situations, like some monk was crossing a stream carrying his begging bowl and it fell into the stream so there's a rule don't carry your begging bowl when you cross the stream something like that you know i don't know if that's a real one but that's kind of idea mm-hmm. of it and the third one is um the conversations between the buddha and his students that the sanskrit word for that is sutras you've heard of a sutra mm-hmm. so the sutras it comes from the same indo-european root as our word suture the bringing together. It's the meeting place of the mind of the student and the mind of the teacher. So the first turning sutras are all about understanding your own suffering and how to find release from that. And then as you practice and you look around, you start to see, well, I'm not the only person suffering. So the next body of teachings are about understanding that what we imagine about the world is actually imagination and that things are not how they seem, and that we could actually see things as they are. And when we see things as they are, we recognize that everybody's suffering and everybody wants to be happy. And the teachings that go along with that are the teachings on the bodhisattva warrior path about the disciplines of generosity, discipline, exertion, patience, meditation, and wisdom. And there's a whole body of teachings about that. And the Third turning teachings are called the ear-whispered teachings. They're about recognizing that not only are things not what they seem, but in fact there's energy and uh, brilliance in the world that we're not even noticing because we're so caught up in our own thoughts about ourselves and what's going to happen to me. So the different kinds of schools of Buddhism that you see, some of them are schools that are based in the teachings of the first turning. Some of them, like in Southeast Asia, the Theravada teachings are pretty much based on the first turning teachings. And the uh, Mahayana teachings of India and China and and Zen, Chang in China and Zen in Japan, those are the sort of second turning teachings. The third turning teaching, and somewhat third turning teachings too, but the teachings of Vajrayana in Tibet are all third turning teachings. So you see different... One of the main qualities of that is embracing chaos. You know, it's like recognizing that in any state of mind, there's a potential for waking up. So we don't have to kind of try to um, um, I'm having a senior moment. If there's a word I'm thinking of, uh... you just summed up my entire life, <laughs> <laughs> especially when I'm talking to women. <laughs> Oh, 
oh God, I can't think of the word, but um, you know, get in the ballpark of the word. Yeah, that we don't have to repress anything. We or uh, try to be um, abst- abstinent. That's not the word, but you know, the idea is to actually find the energy at the core of the feeling and let go of the storyline and find the wisdom in it instead of getting caught up in all of the the neurotic habitual patterns that are triggered by a particular emotion. That's uh, Let go of the storyline is a really, I don't know why, but that really f- jumped out at me. I don't know why. Maybe that's because I'm also, I, I'm, I'm a writer, but it is, I think we get caught up in our story. Our story is, a, is like, and the story we want to create for ourselves. And I think a lot of times we create our own drama. Oh, completely. Vonnegut said that. He's like, there's, there's the, there's the lives and stories, which are these, you know, ups and downs and these peaks, and we feel a need to be like one of those stories, so we create these, and it's unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, the meditators of yore have looked at how quickly we build those stories, and they argue about whether it happens in a 500th of a second or a 60th of a second. That's interesting. You know, you start with just open space and instantly there's here I am in this space and here you are and what's our relationship and how how are we going to relate to each other and you know what should I say and how should I be and all of a sudden it's stuck it seems and it it seems that we live in a time and maybe I'm again like I said earlier it's like maybe everybody thought this about their time but it seems like there is a very it is a everyone has a facade nowadays like there is these f- clothing trends or fashion trends of like, look at my wax mustache. And it's like, it's everything is very... Is that really happening now, oh, wax mustache? Oh, yeah. It's it's that, like there's these waxed face hair, like it's very in the, in the um, like for the lack of a better word, hipster sort of. And it's like dudes with wax mustaches and wacky beards and, oh, and hats. I'm and, so out of it. I miss that. Thank God. Just thank yourself every day that you have no idea that there's, grown men dressing up like sailors because like i went to a music festival la- last year or i i performed in it you know I, there's oh, really? me talking out of my what ego i'm a i'm a stand-up comedian oh but uh there was you're so serious now <laughs> <laughs> this is because this is less this is not about my joke but the the there's so many people who are dressed up in like costumes but huh. the, and the, but like hey this is the way this is and it's like it's just such a presentation it's like you're yeah. I, like, we How lost am I going to be? Who am I going to be? Yeah, it's yeah. opposed to like, I don't know, and maybe like back in the 40s and 50s, it was like, you know, you when you hit 18, you you grew the fuck up and you dressed like a man and you went and were a man <laughs> or right, a, or a right. woman. Yeah. Not to say that those roles are necessarily right, but it, there was a, all right, not, and now it seems like there's this childishness carried on through people's 30s. And I personally find it really weird. <laughs> But it's like, but we it's have. It's interesting, yeah. I do think it's a sort of a reflection of our culture. Of it's very present yourself, get, be famous. Everybody can be famous now. It's like make your wacky five minute video and you can be famous. And and some people have made a shit ton of money off it. And it's but it, to me it goes back to it's it's causing more suffering and more, people to lose touch with reality because <laughs> it's everything's created now. Yeah, and it comes from not having any confidence in your own goodness. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Can you expound on that? Or is there that or is it best to be that simple? Well, probably it would be good to contemplate that. But what does that mean to you? I I I think and maybe this is the first degree of it is that people are afraid to be pre- to present themselves as who they are. Yes. And so, if I put on a whimsical hat and and you know shirt, that will attract. It's you know it's the peacock feather thing. Like me. Like me, mm-hmm. because I presented myself in a clever manner, mm-hmm. which is a facade, and it's not. You know, no thirty-year-old guy really wants to dress like a sailor. <laughs> Unless he's in the Navy, and he probably still doesn't want to, because that sounds like an awful life to me. Unless he's in Gilbert and Sullivan, you know. True, that's true. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this whole, I think the, the ultimate aspiration of Shambhala, if you will, is the creation of an enlightened society. That's huge order. What does that mean? That means starting with individuals feeling enough gentleness towards ourselves. You know, I think on the phone we were talking about what an epidemic there is of people being hard on themselves in this culture. Yeah. You know, if I say that to someone, I say, wow, you're really being hard on yourself. Um, Oftentimes people look at me like, wow, I am. You know, like they didn't even realize they were being hard on themselves. Somebody said that to me recently and they were like and it was something and i was like yeah and i was like i'm gonna knock that the fuck off because it's and it's and then i think you know that goes back to society a lot too is like i have a friend who was telling me she's like i need to lose 10 pounds i'm like you're slender and gorgeous like you you have you could probably put on 10 pounds and it would wouldn't matter a goddamn thing but there's that yeah we have an idea of how we ought to be instead of feeling what we are and appreciating what we are and really appreciation is huge i think you know yeah it's we get so many voices crammed in our head from a young like i mean i'm still sorting out you know just the things you know my background was very blue collar working class my father came from a very rough background you know his dad killed people for a living (laughs) it's like so there's this sort of that I never understood what the phrase, like, you know, in the Bible, we carry the sins of our father. I always was like, so I'm going to suffer for my dad stealing that candy bar. <laughs> but it's like more of like that emotions kind of gets shoved along. Mm-hmm. And if you don't stop those voices, you know, you're you're doomed to repeat those sins, so well, to speak. First, you have to hear them. It's hard. But I think a lot of people don't get out of that. Yeah. Um. Which is good, because then we can manipulate them and make money on them, or get sex. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I'm really doing this conversation. Um, Do you feel like the person you were 40-something years ago when you started this, do do you look back and see almost a completely different person? Or... Is that a big... Do you look... Well, you're not old enough to look back 40 years. I'm, I can, actually. I'm 43. I don't tell you people... You can't that. look back. <laughs> I, I got a stiff neck. I can never look back. But, I mean, I, I look back at... I look back at the person I was three or to five years ago and go, oh, my, you poor bass. Like, I was a very... I drank like a lunatic. I pursued things that were uh, empty, you know? And I drank because I was sad and I also because I thought I had an abundance of free time due to what I do in life. So I was like sort of snickering at the dopes in the cubicles going, well, I'm winning. <laughs> but it's like, I wasn't. I was I was making myself more and more miserable. Mm. And, to, and in the back of my brain, there was always this, myself almost watching from above saying like knowing I needed to get out of it and sort of and like I I was playing a video game with myself and kept driving into walls until I finally just like really stepped back and I pulled away from drinking and all these things for two years and and it was a year into not drinking I realized I need something beyond not just drinking to get more clarity and that's when I sort of arrived at this sort of mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that was when then i would say that last year of my life has made more sense and has had more joy and acceptance than it's ever had before and i'm i know i'm not even you know that got, makes me happy <laughs> <laughs> i don't but i i still think like i don't even have my ticket to the game yet let alone in the ballpark like i've just really yeah but you know there's a ballpark i know (laughs) you want to go my teacher says the first thing is to want to go to want to go and to want to want to go sorry you have to want to want to go to the ballpark like you might not even want to want to go to the ballpark does that make sense it totally makes sense and i have had conversations with friends where they're like i'm like where i'm trying to go like no 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 those people that you think have everything and like the richies I'm like, they're not really happy. I mean, 
yeah, they whatever they have to, you know, I'd be it'd be pretty fun to fly around in a private jet. That's fun. It's not happy, but people don't. People still, it's a hard thing to unlock yourself from. Yeah. And it's weird because now my approach to everything in life is like I don't really give. Like I used to really want to be a famous comedian writer. I so don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> And it's like really, it's but there is the, well, what's now? What's next? But I'm trying not to think about that. And I've never, I haven't said this publicly. I'm contemplating moving out of the country. Really? <laughs> Which I've, my Why? friends are going to listen to this. Um, I think it would be the challenge of or to to say goodbye everything, everything that I have based my comfort on, may, and this is early stages of dicking around with this in my brain, but I would be forced to get rid of everything I own, including my dog who I love. <laughs> you could have him. Um, and go to a place where I don't know anybody and they don't know me or the, 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 the persona that I have accumulated over the years. So it would be sort of this, just this weird raw start or not start, but like, it would just be an interesting sort of, and I'm in this, and let's see what happens. That seems that concept seems very appealing. You could do that without leaving. Oh, you mean take acid? <laughs> <laughs> you well, could. Well, the thing about leaving is you go with yourself. Yes, I mean I'm fully aware I would be that, but I've never done that. Like I was contemplating, like, oh, what if I went and taught English in Japan for wonderful that's yeah. what and then it would be yeah I don't know yeah interesting but when you say you could do that without leaving what did you mean well I like how you've turned a lot of this on me by the way <laughs> was that intentional sorry you're a teacher that is that what you part of what you do is you so you I've enjoyed it. I hope so. <laughs> no, it's I've been incredibly fascinating. Good. But is that... Well, I'm thinking about retreat. Uh-huh. You know, retreat is a really interesting experience. In retreat, you're just there with yourself. And you can leave everything. You leave your dog behind. Although, I do know of a retreat cabin where they let you bring your dog. Just FYI. Okay. <laughs> But the idea is to let go of all your outside pursuits and just spend some time being with yourself without having anything you have to do. Right. And, I mean, you have to take care of yourself, so you have to cook for yourself, and you have to take care of your body, and you find yourself thinking about things, so you have the meditation practice to kind of frame the whole experience. And it's a way of unplugging from and disconnecting from all the aspiration and anxiety and uh, things that we have to do in our lives that creates possibility, possibility of a different perspective. And there are different kinds of retreats. You know, right. There's solitary retreats, and then there's you know, going to stay at a contemplative center where you follow the schedule, and you, know, you practice, and you work, and you engage with other people. And it's really amazing how... Is there a lot of sleeping around at those? <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a hotbed of effery? I hate to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> really. I, was being, I was being facetious, but now I'm in. I, uh, and the... Yeah... There, it's interesting, though, it's like how slow others are to realize someone has... People have... I, I, I for years, have presented myself sort of as a curmudgeonly neurotic, <laughs> um, and that was true, and like uh, people always like say things about how I'm bitter and angry, and I've never... I mean, and I also don't think anger is necessarily always a bad thing when it's like, you know, when you're angry at the system, I'm just like, that's an okay to be discontent with things, but... There's negative, but but people always associate me with that because a lot of my writing, a lot of my comedy is kind of darker, blah, blah, blah. And it's hard to shed that, have people stop seeing you as that. And it's like, and people say things to me. I'm like, I'm not that person anymore, or I'm not, I don't 
that's not how I want to be known. It's very, uh, it's almost upsetting. So I punch him right in the fucking throat. <laughs> See what I mean? But I enjoy that fakeness. Of, I mean, I enjoy exploring that in a fictitious world, but I don't really want to ever hit anybody except for George W. Bush. And Cheney. Or that shotgun could have just backfired on him. Am I right? I should, that's not good karma, is it? Probably not. Neither is what... What does ma- that mean, not good karma? It doesn't mean that you're going to be reborn as an ant. No. It means that actually you feel kind of yucky when you do something that is like... Not about Cheney, though. <laughs> but they can, can one not be a distributor of karma? Like, Cheney's got some shit coming to him. Maybe I'm the vessel. <laughs> well, without the higher perceptions, one cannot know, as it says in the chant. <laughs> right. I'm agreeing with you like I know the chant. <laughs> Well, I think I just I feel like I should sum something up with you, but I okay. I don't know what it is. Um, you're a very wonderful person to be around. I've thank you. You're welcome. It's I'm enjoying fu- being with you. You also kind of remind me of my friend Sarah Negadari, which is interesting. Who would love you, by the way? <laughs> She's also a gifted musician. Ah, what does she play? She is in a band called the Happy Hollows. I'll have to look for them. Um. She's a she's a very and she she's a very heavy meditator and stuff. Mm. She's uh she's she's a quite unique individual. But anyway, good uh, to have a good friend. You guys would be great friends. I it would be it would be funny to see you two together. No, Even, I mean, good for you that that you have a good friend. Oh, th- I, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of good friends. It's the one thing I've done well in my life is I have a lot of really loving, loyal people. That says a lot about you. And they lend me money, so that says a lot how stupid they are. <laughs> um, well, I just—I guess we'll just—this is the end of how it ends. I feel like there was a question you asked that I started to answer, and I got sidetracked, and I can't remember what it was, and I apologize for that. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Yeah, <laughs> I was—I was harboring that resentment and letting it fester, as a good Westerner would. I. I thank you very much. This You're was welcome. very um not Thank you to, for asking me. It was uh, great and uh, you will be seeing me around here again. Good. Are there are a lot of single women here? Yeah. I'm lonely and I want to attach my joy to another person. That sounds good. That will make me whole. Cuz it's like in that shitty movie where Tom Cruise says you complete me. Uh-huh. Which has always infuriated me cuz it's like that is really not the way to handle a relationship. <laughs> it's like right. that's a lot to put on that person. That's right. Tom Cruise who we know his relation, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. That's uh, Pamela Bothwell. Uh, so maybe go do some meditating. Get into the now. Uh, if you enjoyed my show, please go to my page on feralaudio.com and uh, donate some money because uh, I don't make a lot of money in life and I'm doing this uh, sort of out of pocket and Dustin Marshall who runs the website and produces my show he sacrifices a great deal of his life so he can give you all the different shows on Feral Audio and uh, we eat a lot of uh, lentils so help us not eat a lot of beans and and shitty food out of cans Uh, (laughs) we're what you call starving artists and we need to keep this site going so uh, donate some money if you don't have any money, but you're gonna buy something on the on the uh, the old Amazon. Go through my link on our page, and if you buy something on on Amazon through my link, we get a little kickback and it helps support us. And that way, you get to have something fun in your life, like a DVD, and we get like a dollar or something. And it doesn't cost you anything. That's just out of Amazon's goodness of their heart and love that they do that. Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire at the old Twitter there. And support and listen to the other shows on Feral Audio. There's uh, Duncan Trussell's Family Hour, Don Teeny, Please Be My Friend. Um, There's other shows that I don't have in front of me, so I can't think of it. Uh, But just peruse the page and watch the shows. It's really awesome. Watch the shows. Watch them, even though you listen to them. Thank you uh, very much for listening to my show. If you want to email me, conversations with Dwyer at gmail.com. Maybe suggest some guests for me or um, just don't send me nude photos, okay? Because sometimes those don't turn out so well. Thank you for listening and I will talk to you soon. Power to the people.
is an artist-friendly podcast collective, hosted by castmates.fm. Host your own podcast at castmates.fm. Today, all of our artists reserve the rights to their materials. Your donations directly support your favorite artists, help pay for their show's production, and keep your favorite shows free. Visit fairlogio.com for other original shows and learn about our community and artists that help make this collective possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This outro features the music of the fancy. We are the fancy.net. the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.